0: Okay, if you would, uh, well, whether you turn there or not, I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, verse 27. Acts 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Father, I ask for the grace and the working of your Spirit that would cause me to approach that verse and what's contained in it with an appropriate soberness and joy, in wonder, in fear. Help my speech be that which fits Paul's intention in his ministry to proclaim and to unfold your purpose for everything. To the glory of your name. Amen. Well, as most of all of you know that I usually spend 90% my time on Sunday morning as a preacher preaching through books of the Bible, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. But this morning, what I'm going to do is I am going to give an introduction to a series that we will be in for about 30 weeks, and the series is titled... God's purpose in redemptive history. And the singular purpose is purposeful. And I will try to unpack that as this morning I give an introduction of what this is about and where we're going to go. So as we go through this series as a whole, it is a series on God's story from creation... Through human history to the new creation in the heavens and the earth. It's about salvation history. Another way to say that is redemptive history. God redeeming from sin a people for Himself linearly throughout history laid out in the Holy Scripture. So the process will be to follow the timeline of the Bible. And go through it that way. But this is not going to be a series on one doggone thing after the other. Oh, look what happened next. Let's talk about that. It's not what this is about. It's not a Bible survey of events in the Bible. But the the way we want to go about it. As we start with Genesis and move through is constantly be, be looking for God's purpose in everything that He is unfolding from Genesis to Revelation. What He is doing in creation and in redemption. And to concentrate through the flow of redemptive history laid out in Scripture on that unifying purpose that ties all of these events together. So in short, we're going to see that this book, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it is in all of its narratives, in its storytellings, and the people that show up, and the happenings that happen, and the interpretation it gives of itself in its teachings, is at its core about God. And God's intention of creating in order to placard and extend His infinite, beautiful, holy glory through creation. That's what we're going to do. And so let me say this, I'm going to say a bunch of stuff this first week, introductory. I have a goal in that. I have, I have a goal that's just bigger than just doing that. I have a prayer in that. And that is that we would love God because of it more deeply. That we would adore what we see in Scripture More fully, and that we would fear him with a greater sense of appropriate, holy awe. That's my goal. But I have learned through the scripture, and I've learned through experience that those things which I just pointed to are heart issues, they're desire issues, love, and adoration, and fear. They don't just happen out of thin air, but those heart issues have a cause. Those effects of loving Him, adoring Him, and fearing Him are exactly that, an effect. Which means there is a cause. And that cause is getting a glimpse of the God of the Bible. Seeing how and what it is about Himself that He has chosen to reveal throughout redemptive history. And that is the ground of a deeper love. A deeper adoration. And a holy fear. And Therefore, my calling as, as a pastor Is not just to stand up week after week and say, love God. Or you should feel this way about God. Or or fear God. But my job is to go to the cause that will bring that effect. And to say to you, week after week after week, open the book up and behold your And so it is, week after week through this series, to open it up and say, look at the first verse of the Bible. God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that exists that is not God. And then it is to say, don't don't move past that. But behold this question. Why? Why? Why in the world would God, who is eternally content and self-sufficient, what moved Him to create such a world that we live in? It is to ask the question, why would He so will to create a world where there would be sin? And horrific, horrific, historical happenings throughout human history. All the way up until last Sunday night in Las Vegas. Why? My job is to constantly open the book and say, Behold in the book of beginnings how God subjected the entire creation to futility. He did it. Response to human sin. It is to say, in the midst of it, look at the promise. It shows up right in the third chapter of Genesis. That He's going to redeem. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. It is to say, look and behold. Why is it that God spends a couple chapters giving us the lineage of Cain? Versus the lineage of his brother Seth. What is he doing? It is to behold and say look. Noah and the ark is not a children's story. It is a horrific story of God's holy judgment. In slaughtering all humanity on earth. Except for Eight. And an ark of salvation it is to say, Look at the infinite God, then electing one man, Abraham, through whom he makes a covenant and he promises to bless every family on the face of the earth through that one man. It is to say, behold, God delivering His people from Egypt and getting the victory over Pharaoh and his armies by His own sovereign hand. It is to say, look at God, give the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. It is to say, behold, God's working in bringing His people over the Jordan Into the land that he promised hundreds of years before to their forefather Abraham. And how? He displaces the people through his people by his sovereign hand. Behold God, the sovereign one, working. It is to say then watch God's people. Who have been delivered time and time again. Reject. This God and say no we want our own king not you and behold how God did not wipe them off the face of the earth but in mercy gave them a king and through the second king David gave them a promise I'm going To send you a human king. Who will be of the lineage of David. And he will sit on David's throne. Forever and ever. Abolishing ungodliness in Jacob. And then the story continues to unfold. With that promise hanging there. With Israel. God's people. Constantly turning away from him in idolatry. And God's judgment comes upon them because of it. And he splits the kingdom into two kingdoms. The northern and the southern. And that goes on for 200 years until the northern kingdom, that is enough... I'm going to fulfill my promise and you're gone. And he brings the Assyrians in in 722 BC and he eradicates the northern kingdom and the ten tribes are lost. But he still has Judah, the southern kingdom, for another 138 years until their rebellion and sin is so filled up. Until God, who constantly would speak through them through prophets, like Jeremiah, and they would shun his voice. And so God, by his hand, using Babylon, comes in and destroys Jerusalem and the temple and carries off the leaders and the princes away. Behold God. That's what this series is. Behold, after about 70 years, some of these Israelites, these Jews matriculate back into the promised land and into Jerusalem and build a wall, a temple that's nothing like the temple of Solomon. And behold, how God still then speaks through some prophets during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Malachi in about the year 430 where we hear the last prophet. Put it in human perspective, right about that time, Socrates is walking around the streets and annoying the elders by speaking such things to the young people in Athens, Greece. And then 450 years, there is... No more prophet. God is not speaking through prophets. During that time, Alexander the Great brings Hellenism, the Greek culture, and the Greek language throughout most of the Western world that we understand now today. And then the Romans essentially take that over. And during that period, that means the end of your Old Testament, during that period is when Judaism was actually constructed in any way that shows up in the New Testament with the synagogue system, Etc. Etc. So, for 450 years, God is not speaking through the prophets until one day in about A.D. 28, a voice is heard crying in the wilderness down by the Jordan. Repent. Because the kingdom that I promised a thousand years ago To baptism under John and commenced his ministry, which at its core was a conflict with the unseen demonic realm. And he unfolded the meaning of the Old Testament, preached it. And he was the king who came and did suffer and die. And was resurrected to new, immortal human life. Forever defeating death. And redemptive history is still going on. As the angel said, this one, this resurrected King Jesus. He will return. He will return one day. And the consummation of the kingdom human history as we have known it, then will end and usher in the eternal age. That's my job as a pastor to say, Behold, your God. So my goal in this series is to say, Look at Genesis. And look what happens next. And look what happens next. What is God up to? Okay, now you've got a context for Exodus. Now you've got a context for the law of Moses and of Joshua leading the children into the land. And then of what happens in Judges and God delivers His people and they rebel again and He delivers their people. And then through Samuel and the kings and the history of Israel. Filtered in with the prophetic writings during that time that we have in Isaiah and Ezekiel. Hosea, Jonah. And in doing this kind of a series, on Sunday morning, instead of down at the local seminary, I know it's kind of weird in our day. And rare. And sad. Because you won't be getting any messages on self-esteem You won't be getting any messages on five practical ways to have better self-control. Or you won't be getting messages on becoming more successful in the marketplace. And of course, all of that you code it in church life with, you know, Jesus coding. But the reason is why. We all do that. Those who hate God. Those who are being saved through Jesus Christ. We all have marriages or singleness. We have jobs. We work. We all do life. What is unique about the church is that Christianity therefore is, it affects those things but it is not primarily about those things. Christianity is about God. And it's about God extending His mercy to undeserving sinners. It's about the Gospel. Christianity is about telling this story in the words of the Bible. They're good enough. And to do that so that the power of the Holy Spirit would cause His people to see and to wonder all the more than they would before they see. It is to have constructed in your minds and in your hearts a worldview that God gives to us and not the world. So my ultimate goal in this series is that your hope, your faith, and your joy In the midst of life. And all that it brings. Good and bad. That that will grow. It will grow deeper. And it will grow wider. Because. You bank. Your hope. On the God. Who revealed himself. In Holy Scripture. That's my goal. Listen to how the Apostle Paul. Paul said this in Romans 15.4 to the church in his day. For whatever was written in the Old Testament, that's what he means, for whatever was written in former days, it was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Old Testament Scriptures, We might have hope. God's story, that is the unfolding of His redemptive acts in history. That's the fuel to the fire of our trust in Him. Our faith in Him. Our worship of Him. The power to overcome our our innate sinful desires. Never perfectly, but really in this Life, His redemptive history, the way He has laid it out, is for the purpose of causing each and every one of you to fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a deeper, in a more profound way. So in this series, we're concerned with the true God not a God who was created in our image the way we would be if we were God. We are concerned with the God who has chosen to reveal things about Himself. And He's done it through redemptive salvation history very purposefully this history is not circular it is linear and our biggest hope in this world is that the god of the bible is the one true god and if we come to know this god more in redemptive history in His great historical acts, then our faith will have deeper roots than ever before. Now, as we do it, the process through the series, again, is not just saying, okay, there's a piece, that's great, let's leave that over there. Well, look what He did over here after that. It is to try to trace, to try to see, to try to discover, and therefore express the basic theme that gives coherence to the Bible's narrative and its teachings. Uh, You know, for instance, you've seen bad movies, you've seen good movies. A good movie means at its foundation, before it is directed, it is also well written. Which means there is a theme. There is a coherence to that movie that ties all those many differing scenes together. And you leave like, whoa, that was powerful. You turn off the sound and don't hear the music or the dialogue and you see scene in the kitchen. And then driving a car, and they're down at the beach, they're in an airplane, someone shoots somebody, they're in a courtroom, you don't know what's happening. But a well written movie with dialogue ties all those pieces together. And there is an overarching point, period, singular point. Which ties all the parts and all the scenes of the screenplay of redemptive history together into one unifying whole. And that's why the Bible has a beginning. And it has a large middle. And there is still yet an end that it proclaims to come. Through all that, that's what I mean by redemptive history. It's not just history. It has a purpose. And there is a reason why we're told what we are told. Without the billions of other things that we're told, because we don't need to be told them in the scriptures, But what we're told is huge and vital. In other words, the Bible is God's narrative. It's His Word about what He thinks about all things. About what He has chosen to reveal about Himself. And about His activity in human history. Time and space. It's not just another story. It is the story of stories. It is about God. And thus it is about everything that He created. And that means through all of it, as you read it, though it will overhear, concentrate on one family, Over here, concentrate on one individual. At the same time, the Holy Scripture sweeps into those stories the entire human race. Which means my story. And it means that your story is caught up into the narrative of the Scripture. Redemptive history from beginning to end. That's where we're going. But before I end this morning, in 15 minutes or so, so, I, I want you to turn to where I began Acts chapter 20 for a moment. Because in what I just said and where we're going, Acts 20 is the underlying premise of doing this entire series. Paul, remember, he's giving this speech to the church leaders, the teachers, the pastors, the elders in Asia Minor. He calls them out knowing, I'm never going to see your face again. And so I'm just going to pick and choose a little bit for time's sake. You pick up in verse 20 and Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable And teaching you in public. And from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. Of repentance towards God. And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day. That I am innocent. Now I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you pastors, not sparing the flock. And even from among your own selves sitting here today will arrive men speaking twisted things in order to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore. Therefore, church leaders, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Notice verse 27 again. I did not cower or shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God now that word translated counsel there, it's the Greek word boule I declared the, the entirety the, the whole boule Purpose, counsel, which is God's. In the context of that, he said in verse 20, I preached everything. I didn't hold anything back that would be helpful or profitable to you. Verse 24, he said, I was testifying to the gospel of grace. In verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day. To admonish every one of you with tears. And so Paul summarizes. All of that. With this term. The whole. Counsel. Of God. In other words Paul taught. The entire message. The message. The purpose. Remember how he said it in Ephesians. The mystery. Which was hidden. It's written. But there's a way it's hidden. Until Christ came. And then I am. He says he did this day and night for three straight years remember in Ephesus center of Asia Minor where the people would come and unfolded the whole boule of God that word boule means when it's God's it means God's will to pursue a certain goal Step by step. Many steps. One boulet. Goal. It's not the whole counsels or purposes of God here. It is the whole purpose or counsel of God. The unifying purpose that ties the myriad of other sub-purposes together. It's like a massive 300, no, that would be too high, uh, 50 foot high mosaic of tile. And if you stand right in front of it, you see there's thousands of pieces of tile at different shapes with different colors on them. Some are really ugly. Others, that's a beautiful color. And all you see is each tile. Many times in our own life, that's all we see right now is the tile that I'm experiencing. But in redemptive history, and as he unfolds it in Scripture, what's happening are are myriad tiles that mean nothing if you're too close. But all of them together make one ultimate boule purpose. Unto the glory of God forever and ever. With a beautifully ugly cross in the artwork. That's what he's doing. That wouldn't happen if there were no fall, it wouldn't happen if there were no sin. It wouldn't happen if there were no Judas or Pilate. God had and has from before creation a goal and a purpose. And underneath those purposes are all these other things that fit the mosaic in their place. So I want you to see for a moment how Luke again uses this word. In Acts chapter 2. In the mouth of Peter preaching. In chapter 2 verse 23. We read Peter in his sermon. This Jesus. To his fellow Jews. This Jesus. Delivered up. You mean by Judas betrayed. And Sanhedrin. Railroading him in the middle of the night. And Pilate cowering. He was delivered up according to the definite boule plan or purpose and foreknowledge of god this jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men jesus was killed by god's according to peter here through luke god's set or definite Is a definite plan, and what you got to see is get the picture of the mosaic. And okay, now he's going to let's pull out this big, massive central tile. But it's a tile; it's not the whole thing. That purpose was not the goal or the end, but it was a step toward the goal. And therefore. Here, the whole boule of God incorporates tons of successive boules or purposes or goals, the tiles to make the whole. For instance, Luke says this, or Paul says it through Luke in Acts thirteen verse thirty-six, and Paul's preaching about David. David and his life. There was a purpose. Fits the whole. For Paul says, for David, after he had served the boulay, the purpose of God in his own generation died. So the whole counsel, the whole purpose of God implies steps in God's purpose for the world. Unfolding one before the other, another after that one, from Genesis to Revelation. And through all those succeeding steps of history unfolding, there is that one unifying theme. And as a whole, that's what Paul taught the whole Boule Council of God. And so that plan, of that huge mosaic of God himself. It means everything that was taught and happened in the Old Testament. The New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. The New Testament is unpacking the Old Testament. For example. God chooses a man Abraham. And then one day he says, "See the stars, can you count them? I can't count them." Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And then the text says, "Abraham believed God, and God reckoned that to him His righteousness." What? He's a sinner. To be declared righteous by God, you're also forgiven of your sins. How can you forgive his sins? The New Testament lets you know clearly how. Because Jesus, though long after temporally, historically than Abraham, was always as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So, see, this is what Paul thinks... When he's in Romans 3, when he gets to the core of the cross where God's wrath is poured out on his eternal son in his humanity, putting Jesus forth as a bloody propitiation, he said this was so that God would be just while he justifies sinners. Because that's a God. So so you look back, it says, because of the sins he just passed over. Like David stealing another man's wife and fearing, and then has him killed. And God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. And David is convicted against you. You only have. And God lets him know through Nathan, there are ramifications for what you have done in this life, David, true human being who is also the eternal God. The New Testament unpacks Leo. That's just an example. And therefore, in this series, we're not going to be approaching it like a systematic theology, categorically. Okay, here's a category, let's deal with the category of God. And then deal with the Father, and then deal with the Son, Christology, and deal with the Spirit, and pneumatology. And then we'll deal with the doctrine of Scripture, and the doctrine of Soteriology, meaning salvation, or the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the last things. No, but the approach will be according to the Bible's own timeline, the way God unfolds it through history. So. Here's my hope (coughs) over the next six or seven months that through all of that, there may be more, but these, I'm gonna give you up front, four huge mountain peaks that I hope you see and believe catch on to as we work through redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. The first is this, that you will see that God is radically, utterly, purely, and thus wholly because of God-centered. And that you will see that that reality is in no way sinful nor selfish for God to always be passionate for His own glory, but that you will see that that reality and that truth is the very foundation from which God can work for our good forever. See God's glory, another way to say that is the essence of God. And his eternal being. Who the self-existent one is. That's, that's, his, that's his glory. That you would see. That's the foundation. Of everything. And if you grasp that. Then. This won't be Christianese to you. The term God-centeredness. As opposed to man centered But that term will be so packed with meaning, you would see it as the precious jewel to you that is all consumed in your Savior, Jesus Christ. And it will be freeing beyond imagination. And this reality, if it's being worked in you, will construct a world view or tweak the one you have right now to such an extent that you will see through a particular biblical grid everything. The world. The beautiful marriage of one of your children. Or the horrific evil last Sunday night. Las Vegas. The second. Mountain peak. That I hope. Over this series grabs hold of you. Is this. That you are never ever ever. To misconstrue God's commandments. You are never ever ever. To think. That God's commandments. Are to be obeyed. In the way that an employee. They are never to be, I guess, like my employer, you need help, I'm help, and I do what you tell me to do, and at the end of the day, or the week, or the month, or of this life, therefore, you owe me a paycheck that I earned. Never were they ever intended that way. But all of His commands are more after the analogy of a doctor, a physician, who's there for you, and says, we have detected cancer. It's very treatable. You need to obey me. First, we're going to go get surgery, we're going to cut it out, and then we're going to do some radiation and chemo, and you're going to be fine. But if you never go back to Him or get the surgery, you are doomed. The way you obey, the great physician, our Creator, because He, more than any human analogy of a physician, is saying, I am the fountain of eternal, everlasting joy and contentment and happiness, come unto Me. Anytime we, particularly as a professor of faith in Jesus Christ, say, Well, God told me not to go have fun by having immoral sex. And you think it's, well, I guess I'm supposed to do it. You are already so steeped in deception. You don't understand His love at that moment. But that all of His commands. The third thing, third mountain peak I want you to see is that lines like this throughout the scripture, throughout Paul, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That at its core means seek your happiness. Seek to be as happy as you can with the reality of knowing only God as the object of that is to be sought. Because He's the only one who could truly do it. Because to the extent we are moving and pursuing our contentment, our joy, our happiness in God is to the extent He is being glorified Being satisfied in God is not optional in the Christian life. It is the pursuit. It's not an add-on to what it is to be a Christian. It's at the essence of what it is to be a Christian. To obey God's command. Delight yourself in the Lord. So my goal in this series... Is that while we're following the timeline of Scripture, we will see and we'll feel with the psalmist that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. That we'll see that what God is after in salvation through Jesus Christ is that the creature, We who are being saved will sing Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And fourth and finally, through this journey of redemptive history, I hope that mountain peak and that lesson in redemptive history will hit home and teach you, particularly in our day of 21st century American evangelicalism, that saving faith is not merely a person making a confession about some historical facts of Jesus dying for sins, being resurrected from the dead, sending to heaven, and coming back. It is not merely an intellectual agreement with facts, but that saving faith at its core, we will see, is a work of God the Holy Spirit in new birth that causes those persons to love Christ to love him whom they behold in holy scripture as the treasure in the field and so practical application i got one that i want to cover the next seven months. Here's my pastoral practical application. And if you don't think this is practical, I hope by the end you will. And here it is. See. Behold, be mesmerized by, be caught up in the beautiful reality that redemptive history, all history, everything indeed, is God showing forth His mercy in the horrific backdrop of evil and horrific wrath, but He's doing this mercy in such a way that the greatest number of persons will come to delight in Him in order to reflect His infinite eternal worth and glory. And that you make sure you are one of I end with Paul. For from Him and through Him and back to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Father, thank You for such a glorious, wonderful salvation. And for those of us unlike Abraham, unlike David, unlike Abel, we're on this side in our mortality of the cross. To live as mortals knowing this good news which was proclaimed, Predicted, waited for, and he has come. Oh, may we love him ever so much more. Oh, may we pursue you, Holy Father, by our Savior, in the power of your merciful work in the Holy Spirit. Amen.